What would it take for you to lose your joy in life? What event would rob you of your peace? Most people just want a trouble-free life. I mean, you're okay not being rich and famous as long as you can get through without some serious tragedy. You know, no cancer, no car accident, no fire burning down the house, no loss of a job. But inevitably, if you live long enough, tragedy will strike. And then what? For a lot of people, it, it rocks their world, sends them into a tailspin, and it robs them of their peace, their joy, and their hope. Does this describe you? Has this described you? Have you faced joy-stealing trials and tribulations? Well, if so, and all the more so, you want to pay extra special attention this morning for we have in our passage one of the most important lessons you could learn. It is the secret, if you will, to never-ending peace and joy. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I know that's the empty promise of countless spiritual gurus, but we have here that the Word of God, the promises of God Himself. Now, you may believe such a reality is impossible, constant peace and joy. I mean, come on, that's, that's like a fairy tale stuff. This is real world. Bad things happen. And that's true, bad things happen, but I want you to, for a moment, consider the life of the Apostle Paul. Think about what Paul's life was like when he wrote Philippians. He had known nothing but loss. He had lost all of his possessions. He had nothing left to his name. He lost his freedom. He had been in in jail for the past four years. He lost his health and several ailments afflicting him. And he lost his relationships. Most of his friends had abandoned or deserted him. Do you want that life? Do you want to trade places with Paul? I mean, his sufferings make probably what you're going through seem not as bad. However, despite his circumstances, Paul still possessed this immense peace and joy. That fact is indisputable. Just read Philippians. It's known as the Epistle of Joy. He's expressing, even though he's writing from jail, his peace, his joy, his contentment all over the place. So it is possible from the life of our Lord to Paul himself, we find it is possible to maintain peace and joy despite terrible circumstances. The only question then is how? How did Paul pull this off? How did he not get depressed? We're not suggesting he was happy that he was in jail, but it didn't steal his joy. It didn't rob him of his peace. So why not? What was his secret? The answer is really not a secret. It's also not that complicated. He simply attached his joy not to his circumstances or his health, his wealth, his possessions, his relationships. Rather, he attached his joy to the Lord. Therefore, he never lost his peace and joy because he never lost the Lord. Circumstances could come and go. He could face feast or famine, disaster or delight. It wouldn't affect his joy, though, because his joy was not in the things of the world, but in the things of the Lord. And nothing could touch that. And like I said, this is one of the most profound spiritual lessons taught in all Scripture. You might call it the not-so-secret of joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. In the Lord. And we got our first big dose of it from our passage in Philippians this morning. 
So again, especially for those of you who might be struggling, you're, you're depressed, you're down, you're discouraged. This is the way out. You have to learn to find your joy, not in the things of the world, but in the things of the Lord. And we're going to learn what that looks like this morning from the Apostle Paul. Philippians 1, 12 through 18 is the passage. We've made it through Paul's introduction. Verse 12 gets us into the main body of the letter. And he begins by addressing one of his main reasons for writing. You might recall how the Philippian church, they were very concerned when they heard that Paul was in prison. So they sent Epaphroditus to him to minister to him and also get a report like, how are you doing? Are you going to be released or, or not? And so after receiving Epaphroditus, Paul, he writes Philippians in part to give them a report, an update. It's like his missionary field report. Only it's not what you might expect. Surely the Philippians thought they would receive bad news from Paul. I mean, after all, he had been imprisoned and therefore prevented from his missionary journeys. That sounds like bad news. That sounds like his gospel ministry is being halted. But to the contrary, he lets them know that his gospel ministry is actually being advanced while he's in prison. How can that be? Well, let's read and find out. Let's start by reading the passage, Philippians 1, 12 through 18. Verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. We find here Paul is both updating them and instructing them at the same time. He wants them to know that the gospel marches on no matter what. And nothing can stop that. His imprisonment is not going to stop that. Even if every missionary on the planet was killed, God would raise up stones to witness the gospel. The gospel marches on. And that's an important lesson in its own right. But in addition, we also start to see here the secret to Paul's peace and joy. This lesson will will fully blossom in the next passage, but already we can learn much because even though Paul had lost literally everything, he sees how the Lord is using his circumstances for the greater progress of the gospel. And this gives him all all the joy and encouragement he needs. Why? Because remember, his joy is attached to the Lord and the things of the Lord. Like the Lord Jesus, Paul delights in the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if God's going to use his circumstances for the greater progress of the gospel, that's enough for him. That's enough to cause him to rejoice. And so as God works in and through his circumstances, he rejoices. And you can too, if you likewise learn to find your joy in the Lord. Well, we're going to get into this passage now, take a closer look 
This is that time of year you might receive a Christmas card from an old missionary friend giving you an update. Well, let's read Paul's missionary update, his status report, and we find a lesson on Christ's gospel and our joy. First notice, number one, the gospel marches through circumstances. Number one, the gospel marches through circumstances. Look again at verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The way this is phrased shows he's delivering an unexpected report. They didn't see this coming. Surely the Philippians thought that Paul's imprisonment was a major blow to the gospel's progress. I mean, who had been doing more to spread the gospel through the ancient world than the Apostle Paul? But now he's imprisoned, he's confined, so it seems like that's, that's a disaster. But to the contrary, Paul says that his circumstances have resulted in the gospel progressing farther and faster than it would have otherwise. Now, how can that be? Well, let's, let's first be reminded what exactly were Paul's circumstances while he's writing. The book of Acts gives us some insight into Paul's situation. Remember, he appealed to Caesar while being on trial, so he was transported to Rome where he was imprisoned while he awaited trial. Now, when you think of Paul in prison, you might think of like a, a concrete cell or a dark dungeon. But Paul's first Roman imprisonment was unlike either of these. Acts 28.16 tells us, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. In Rome, major offenders were thrown into the dark dungeon but minor offenders basically put on house arrest. And so Paul, he's able to stay by himself in his own rented quarters, with the slight exception he was guarded by a Roman soldier 24-7. Although Paul could not come and go, others could visit him, and hundreds of people did. In fact, this is how the book of Acts ends. Acts 28, 30, and 31. It says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And remember, it's in that time that he writes Philippians as well. So you see, the book of Acts is making the same point as Paul does in Philippians that his circumstances, namely confinement, actually resulted in the greater progress of the gospel. Just because he's confined, that doesn't mean the gospel is confined, that there's no confining the good news of Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And get this, in, in Rome, Paul was actually freer to preach the gospel in prison than out. I mean, he's already in jail. What more could they do to him? He's already confined. Instead, he was able to preach the gospel openly and unhindered to all who visited him. He had just He could say whatever he wanted. Ironically, Paul was safer preaching in prison than out, and in many respects more effective. So, like he said, again, through despite terrible circumstances, God was using it for the greater progress of the gospel. The gospel marches on through circumstances. Whatever the case, Christ himself promises much when he said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, that's, it's easy to say. It's, it's easy for Paul to say, hey, my circumstances have made the gospel spread faster. 
But that claim demands an explanation. And so he gives an explanation in verses 13 and 14. First, he explains how the gospel was advancing in unbelievers. The first in unbelievers. Look again at verse 12. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that in my imprisonment, or rather that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. So first he relates how his imprisonment has actually spread the cause of Christ throughout this whole Praetorian Guard and other people too. And what's that all about? Well, remember back in Acts 28, I mentioned Paul was free to stay by himself, but except he was with that one Roman soldier. Historical t- data tells us this would have been constant supervision, meaning he would have been literally chained to a Roman soldier 24-7. Paul alludes to this chaining as the word for imprisonment here literally means bonds, the bonds you would wear as a prisoner. These are like handcuffs today, but they're 18 inches long. Paul would have been chained to a Roman guard. Most likely they had four-hour shifts on and off, but he was always with a Roman guard. Who were these Roman guards? Verse 13 tells us they were part of what's called the Praetorian Guard. Here in Philippians, the Praetorian Guard refers to an elite group of soldiers in Rome. Originally, Augustus created this guard. He appointed 10,000 of these elite soldiers in Rome, keep the peace, also protect the emperor. But things got out of hand. They became too powerful. And over time, not only did they protect the emperor, they were the ones who basically chose the next emperor. They were so powerful. So these were the soldiers who were guarding Paul. One of these guys in shifts was chained to Paul for two years. That meant for Paul, no privacy. Not while he's eating or drinking, sleeping, going to the bathroom. But that also meant for these soldiers, they couldn't escape Paul. His teaching his preaching, his praying, his witnessing for two years. That's a captive audience. And over time, they understood Paul was no common criminal. He says it had become well known throughout the whole guard that his imprisonment was for the cause of Christ. It means they understood this this guy, Paul, he's not an ordinary criminal. He's one of those new Christians. And by Paul's constant witnessing, he was able to implant the seed of the gospel in in countless hearts, and many of them came to salvation. We learn that from the end of Philippians, where he says in Philippians 4.22, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now think about it. Paul never would have had this kind of insider access to Caesar's household, the Roman guard, if he were not in prison. He would have had no access to the Praetorian Guard or all these Roman officials. Yeah, he could have preached on the streets of Rome, and that's good, but clearly God wanted a witness at the very top of Roman society. And as Paul witnessed, so the gospel advanced. Despite circumstances, the gospel marches on. And in this regard, we can look back and we can say, God did not make Paul captive to those Roman guards. He made the Roman guards captive to Paul for two years. They were chained to him. 
And they had no choice to listen to the gospel for two years, resulting in many coming to salvation. That's how God works. This is his business. The gospel advances in the least likely of places, times, and circumstances. And that's because the power is in the word. So as long as the word is being preached, the gospel will advance. Like Paul said during his second Roman imprisonment, under much harsher circumstances, 2 Timothy 2.9, he said, I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. God had Paul right where he wanted him to do his work. The same goes for you. God is sovereign over your circumstances. You, you might face tragedy, but God is in the business of transforming calamity into opportunity. Chances for the gospel to go forth into places it never would have otherwise. And as you realize this, like Paul, and as you participate in witnessing the gospel, no matter what you're going through, well, then you get a joy, the joy of being a part of God's work. So first, this is how the gospel marches on through circumstances in the lives of unbelievers. The same is true for believers, though. He says, secondly, he tells us how the gospel was marching on despite his circumstances in the lives of believers. Look now at verse 14. He says also that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Here we see the effects of the advance of the gospel inside the church. Of course, we're not talking about salvation. These people were already saved. But Paul's imprisonment helped the gospel advance in the hearts of these believers, giving them more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Keep in mind, verse 14, Paul is talking about believers in Rome. So let's ask, what was life like for believers in Rome at that time, around AD 60? Well, at that time, the infamous Nero was emperor in Rome, and he was growing in his madness. Persecution and hardship for Christians was on the rise. About two or three years after Paul writes Philippians, Nero, according to ancient historians, he would set fire to Rome himself to make way for his new building project. It got out of hand, and as outrage over the fire grew, an easy scapegoat was found in the new Christians. So hundreds of Christians were therefore crucified, burnt alive, or thrown to wild beasts as a result. Now, granted, that happened a couple years after Paul writes Philippians, but you already get the feeling, the atmosphere of what it's like for Christians in Rome. It's not good. So naturally, you can understand why Christians would be timid to stand up and, and share their faith. Before Paul's imprisonment, many believers, they were too scared to preach, fearing what might happen to them. But something changed when Paul went to prison. Seeing Paul suffer to the point of imprisonment for preaching the word motivated them to step up, to fill the gap that he left behind. And seeing Paul to, con to continue to minister from jail with courage, it led them to have courage themselves and to speak the word of God without fear. Verse 14. 
You know, courage and cowardice, they're both contagious. People look to their leaders to see how they respond in times of hardship, and they will derive either courage or cowardice from their response. Think of the Israelites versus the Philistines. You've got Goliath, mighty Goliath, and he was fearless. He gave the Philistines behind him courage to fight. The other side, you've got King Saul. Although he's a warrior, he was scared. He didn't want to fight Goliath, and his cowardice spread to all the Jews. They were afraid too. It wasn't until one man, David, this young man with great courage and confidence in the Lord, he rose up, and as he slayed Goliath, so his courage infected all the rest of the Jews, and they went on to fight and rout the enemy. It just takes one man of extraordinary courage to stand up, and others will follow. Paul was one of those guys. Through suffering terrible, unjust, frightening circumstances, his life was on the line. His trust in the Lord never wavered, though, and he just carried on, all the more so in gospel ministry. And this example was enough to spur on others to do the same. And so the gospel advanced in the lives of believers, strengthening them to let their light shine even in the midst of darkness. Such a transformation. We said earlier that the gospel advanced farther with Paul in prison than out. How can that be? Well, the answer is by God's power, working through faithful saints who trust him. But God wasn't surprised that Paul landed in prison. It's part of his plan. He was ordaining these circumstances for his will. Paul had some divine appointments in that jail, and, and he had to meet them. But as he was doing so, God was pushing forth the gospel into the very heart of Rome itself. That's a move that would impact all of world history. But this is how God works. The gospel marches through circumstances, good or bad, in believers and unbelievers. And your response to all this must be to reprogram how you view life's circumstances. We've seen so many examples in the life of Paul how God ordered his terrible circumstances of suffering for the greater good, often that good being the gospel going forth. Lydia's conversion, the Philippian jailer, here, his imprisonment in Rome. So what makes you think God still doesn't do this? He does. And he is likewise working in your circumstances right now. It is on you to see the good and the opportunity in your circumstances. And as you see the opportunity, then you are called on to be faithful, to just let your light shine, to to minister the gospel. And that is so often how God takes what others mean for evil and he transforms it into good. What what greater good is there than the salvation of, of the lost? And so be encouraged. This is how God works. The gospel marches through circumstances. Secondly now, number two, the gospel marches through motives. Through motives. Get to the second half of this passage. And I got to tell you, it's, it's one of the most intriguing passages in all of Scripture. I'm not exaggerating. Listen to what Paul says next. He just said, back in verse 14, that many believers have been emboldened to preach 
more now that he's in prison. But there's actually two groups of such emboldened Christians, but they have mixed motives. Let's read about them. Look at verses 15 through 17. He says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Do you, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying there, there are two groups of Christians preaching the gospel more in Rome now that he's in prison. But one group is not preaching out of love, but out of selfish ambition. I mean, what does this mean? What's he saying here? Well, he's saying the gospel marches on through motives. In other words, God can use those even with impure motives to advance the good news of Christ. This is not to suggest your motives don't matter. They do. But he's saying God can use any person as a mouthpiece for the gospel. And there's so many stories of of Christians. They go on a missions trip, evangelize the lost, while they themselves weren't saved. Think of John Wesley. He was raised a Christian. He was extremely orthodox and devout, except he wasn't born again. He wasn't truly saved. He was just doing all the right things, going through the motions, like many people do today. Very religious, but just going through the motions. He did not have a true saving faith, though. One of the right things to do was go on a missions trip. So in 1735, he went to Georgia to become a missionary to the Native Americans. He was doing all the right Christian things, but he was still depressed. Why? Well, although he had an orthodox message, his his faith wasn't real. He had nothing going on in his heart. Only years later, upon returning home, was he truly born again, submitting in his heart to Christ as Lord, and he was transformed. But all this goes to say the Lord can use any person as a mouthpiece for the gospel, even those with impure motives. And that's what's going on here in Philippians 1. Let's take a closer look at these two groups preaching Christ. First, you have the selfish, those preaching out of selfishness. Verse 15, he says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife. And he says of them in verse 17, The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. First, Paul tells us how the gospel is going forth by the hands of selfish men. These men, these men were motivated by selfishness, self-centeredness. Their chief motivation was not a love for Paul or Christ or the gospel, but really their own reputation. Our first big question, who are these people? Well, look at verse 15. It, it says, some... So it's a minority group. It's not the majority. There's only some of these guys. Now look at verse 14. He says, Most of the brethren, trusting the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife. You see the contrast between most and some? It's most of the brethren and then some of the brethren. 
But the key thing, though, is he still calls them brethren. Meaning these people are believers. These are people inside the church who are preaching Christ from selfish reasons. And that's what makes this passage so fascinating. These people aren't Judaizers. They're not false teachers or heretics or unbelievers. These are Christians. They have orthodox theology. The problem is not their theology, it's their motive. They're not anti-Christ, they're anti-Paul. Don't be too shocked, though. This is not the first time something like this has happened. You might recall the situation in Corinth. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And he, their, their situation, they were so divided. You remember how many of them were saying, you know, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Kephas, I am of Jesus. They had split up into these factions and gathered around their favorite apostle. Some were pro-Paul, some were anti-Paul. And it seems like a group of these anti-Paul Christians were living in Rome. And when Paul was imprisoned, they were emboldened. It's like, it's our time to shine. They were emboldened to speak out all the more so because he was imprisoned. Not for the sake of the gospel, really to rub salt in Paul's wounds and to get in on the action. Notice how he characterizes them. He says in verse 15, they're preaching Christ from envy and strife. Envy, very similar to jealousy. It is that resentfulness which is aroused by what others possess. I mean, if you're stuck taking the bus to work and then your friend gets a new Mercedes and is bragging, if that arouses you to discontentment and resentfulness, well, that's, that's envy. In respect to these Christians and Paul, they didn't envy his possessions, though. He had nothing. They envied his status. He was already well known as an apostle, preacher of the gospel. He had great success in planting countless churches. So they wanted his status, his reputation, his gifting. As is often the case, envy leads to strife. They were happy to kick Paul while he was down in order to get in on his action, on his his success. They wanted a piece of the pie. They're really only concerned about their own reputation. Now, at this point, you, you might be wondering how Paul can even call them Christians. And they sound pretty pretty bad, but don't be mistaken, they were real believers. Paul doesn't mix words. He has a zero-tolerance policy for false teachers and wolves in sheep's clothing. But he's very tolerant and gracious with these people here. Although they're against him, he's harboring no bitterness back toward them. That's because he knows who they are. They are simply immature baby Christians. They're they're baby Christians. Again, it's just like the the Corinthian church. After calling out their divisiveness, he says this, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Verse 2, he says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able yet to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? It's the same thing, if you can see. These envious preachers in Rome, they're nothing more than than immature baby Christians. 
They may be truly saved. Yes, truly born again. But they still greatly struggle with their flesh and their selfish desires. But again, don't be so surprised. It still happens today. What Christian is there who doesn't wrestle with his flesh and its selfish desires? It's just that these envious preachers, they just so happen to be on the far end of that immaturity spectrum. They were still largely captivated by their selfish desires. This is reflected in their main motive for preaching Christ. Verse 17, selfish ambition. This is the person who's all about climbing the career ladder and doesn't mind stepping on the necks of others to get to the top. Unfortunately, this type of selfish ambition can be found in the church. That's what Paul is encountering. Even today, there's been no shortage of men who view the pastorate as a means of gain, trying to get something out of it. They start off pure maybe, but then they get their taste of of money or power or influence and have an insatiable desire for more. Maybe they see that that mega church pastor, he's got the book deals, and they want that. They they want that near-celebrity status. Even in Paul's day, he says over in 1 Timothy, there were men who saw the ministry as a means of gain talking financial gain. There will always be those who are driven by money and they don't mind fleecing the flock to get some. But the really amazing thing is God can actually still use those people. Again, we're not talking about the false teacher. We're talking about those who preach the truth but from some impure motive. But hey, as long as the gospel is being preached and Christ proclaim people can get saved the gospel advances and that's because the power is not in the messenger but the message it's not in the person but in the word again this doesn't mean it's okay to minister with wrong motives just because god can make lemonade out of lemons rather such men will find no reward for their labor in heaven as they stand before christ and he evaluates their work it may be that all of their ministry efforts just burn up like wood, hay, and straw. But God, in his sovereignty, he can still use them so long as the gospel goes out, it advances. Because the gospel advances even through motives. This includes the selfish. It also includes, secondly, the sincere. Remember, there were two groups preaching because he was in prison. Some were selfish, but the rest were sincere. Look back at verse 15. He says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. And the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Thankfully, this was the majority. They were preaching Christ more out of goodwill and love. He says most, back in verse 14, they were motivated to preach without fear because of his imprisonment. Their motive was not selfish, but sincere. They, they loved God and the gospel and Paul, and they wanted to stand in the gap. Paul, speaking of this group in verse 16, says that they preach Christ out of love. It's actually a reference to their personal love for Paul. I mean, yeah, they love God, they love the gospel, but they had a special love for Paul, and as he went down, they wanted to step up and and, and help do their part. They recognized Paul as a true apostle of Jesus Christ. They knew his chains were not for wrongdoing, They knew he wasn't imprisoned because he was unfaithful. Rather, it was precisely because he was faithful to the ministry that he was in chains. 
and seeing Paul suffer so much for the gospel emboldened these other believers. As Paul was taken out of the game, so to speak, they stepped up, they took the baton, and they carried the gospel forward for God. Spurgeon gives a great illustration of this, of a fallen tree. You have a great big tree and it falls down. At first you might be sad because you can no longer rest under its shade. But over years, many other little trees, which were once dwarfed by the shade of the great tree, they've been allowed to grow up. And they now span themselves over quite an area. Even more shade can be found under them. And likewise, as Paul's ministry influence fell to a degree, now that he's confined, well, God used that to raise up many more. And through that, the gospel just multiplied in Rome. And uh, largely, here we are today because of the gospel advancing in Rome. But this is why the gospel will always advance. Because God always leaves a faithful remnant who will carry on the work. Again, if God needed, he could use a herd of donkeys to preach the gospel. Uh, is that what you call it, a herd? No, I, wouldn't, I wasn't sure about that in my notes. But, but he's chosen to use a faithful remnant, and through them, especially the sincere, the gospel marches on. What is the result? What is the result of all of this, he says? It comes in verse 18. His, his response. How would you respond to these two groups? Well, Paul's response, verse 18, he says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Such a remarkable response. This, this is the verse that makes this passage so intriguing. One would expect Paul to denounce these detractors, to rebuke them, to pass holy judgment on them. At least say something. He's not even bitter toward them, though. He has no really stinging words. He says, what then? And what are you going to do about it? What, what can you do about it? You've got these immature Christians who, on the one hand, they're preaching Christ out of impure motives, envy, strife, selfish ambition. But on the other hand, I mean, they're preaching the true gospel. They're orthodox in theology. They're getting it right. People are getting saved. What are you going to do? I mean, Paul's in jail. It's not like he could personally correct them. So he says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and this I rejoice. His response was to rejoice. Why? Well, because at the very least, the gospel was marching on. And that, that's just about one of the greatest goods, isn't it? One of the greatest goods God can bring about through bad things, the gospel advancing. And as we saw before, Paul attached his joy to the Lord and the things of the Lord. So although he may be suffering at the hands of terrible circumstances and immature believers, if God was going to use all that to push the gospel forward, well, that's enough of a reason for him to rejoice, to, to still have joy, to take delight, because God's still working in good and bad, in pure and unpure. And it's right here, it is from Paul's response that we find the real takeaway to this whole passage. He's expressing this key perspective shift that every Christian needs to learn. This takes place at salvation. It starts at salvation, this massive reorientation in your whole person. 
when you come to faith in Christ, your goals change. Your desires change. Your values change. It starts and it should grow as you grow. Before, you live for self. That's all you cared about. You serve self. But now that you've come to know God and his son Christ and the gospel and you've believed, he changes you such that now you, you, you live for him. You seek his glory and his good and his will to be done on earth. With this comes an eternal perspective in life where you realize, of course, this life matters, but what matters most is is, is the next life, eternity. And if anything impacts eternity, that's more important than the things of this world, which are so fleeting. This is all part of this huge perspective shift that begins at salvation. This is the only way Paul can rejoice in the midst of his sufferings because he sees with that eternal perspective, how God is is transforming his adversity into opportunity for the gospel to spread. That's a great thing, and that's enough for him to rejoice. The same can go for you. I mean, it doesn't always happen overnight, but as as your perspective likewise shifts, you come to, to truly, in your heart, just value God and his glory and the gospel above all else. The things of this world grow strangely dim and all all you have is Christ. As that becomes more of a reality in your life and you attach your joy to the Lord, then you too will find that not so secret of, of possessing this everlasting peace and joy. Because even though you could lose everything, well, you still have Christ and that's enough. And that's what we'll find, like I said, in next week's passage where Paul says, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That's the secret. Well, just last week, we had some friends of ours from our old church go through some serious personal tragedy. I felt called to tell you about it. A 17-year-old daughter of the children's ministry pastor, Abby, she was driving to class on the freeway with some girlfriends. That's when a metal pole came off of a car in front of them. It went through the windshield and impaled her in the head, right above the eye. Her friend Shanna, or Shanna rather, grabbed the steering wheel. Abby's foot was stuck on the gas pedal. They spun out. They were sideswiped by a big rig. They came to crash into another big rig. Thankfully, An off-duty ambulance just happened to be right there. The other girls were okay. Abby was taken to a nearby trauma center and survived. It's in stable condition, thankfully. Still, though, in a coma. And we'll see if she wakes up. But talk about a tragedy. This is a, a fallen world. And sadly, we know it's only a matter of time before it strikes. We can't control... These circumstances, we can only control how we respond to to bad things. Bad things happen. So how would you respond to this? I can tell you how her parents are responding. They post all the time on Facebook giving updates. They are daily praising God and trusting in God for his mercy. They are, of course, praying nonstop that God would supernaturally heal and raise up their daughter 
But they're also praying this. I'll read you a quote from one of their posts. They're praying that God would, quote, use this event in our lives to bring glory to his name and exalt Christ all the more in and through our family. And that many would come to a true, genuine, saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, end quote. Talk about the right response. And understand, that response does not diminish their love for their daughter in any way. It's just that they, too, have an eternal perspective. They see God. He's still at work. He's still on the throne. And they see what matters most. So I wonder, could you pray that? Could you respond like that? I pray that you could and that you learn this lesson which only comes when you put all things in their proper perspective. There are bad things in this world. There are bad people. But God is in the business of working out all things for good for those who love him. And all too often, that involves the spread of the gospel, ordaining at times even terrible circumstances, yet through it, taking the good news of Christ farther than it would ever go before. As you get this, as you value this God and the gospel, as you live for Christ more and more, then you will know you will have greater and greater peace and joy in life no matter what happens because God is always at work and the gospel always marches on. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are thankful for this word from Paul. You even ordained in his life some some terrible things. He knew countless sufferings, beatings, imprisonments, injustices, and even writing Philippians in the midst of it as well, yet still retained this joy and peace and comfort. Why? Because he found it in you. You're a good God. You're still on the throne. You are a loving God. And though you've allowed evil in this world, you still even use that for the greatest good, your glory, the salvation of sinners, the sanctification of believers. Lord, we have to just trust you know what you're doing and you're good. And as we come to value this world less and the things of this world less and less, as the things of this world grow strangely dim and we see Christ more for who he is and what he is to us, namely everything. Lord, then we too can can rejoice and have peace and joy because nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. We have him by faith. We can never lose him so we can always find reason to rejoice. Lord, teach us this lesson. We need, we need it imprinted on our hearts because the day will come for us When tragedy strikes, it's going to happen. It's a fallen world. So implant this lesson in our hearts this morning, Lord, that we would come to value you and the gospel above all else. We also want to pray for our beloved friends, Brock, Christina Boldy, and their daughter, Abby. We pray, Lord, that you would heal her, lift that coma, raise her up to full health. We pray you would be magnified through that, Lord. But we have to join with their parents. We have to pray what they pray. It is only right that you would be somehow magnified through this tragedy. And that your name, that the name of Christ, the gospel, would go forth 
deep into that hospital where it would never have gone before. And many would be impacted by the truth through this calamity. They offer up their lives to you on the altar, Lord. We do the same. We are but vessels, but servants for you and for the gospel, for the good news of Christ. So we will, we will march on. Trusting the gospel will march on through us, Lord. We thank you for this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.